Well, it is my privilege to introduce my friend, but also my colleague, Alyssa Reed. Um, so go ahead and join me in welcoming her this morning. And uh, I was like, there are so many things I could say about Alyssa, her heart for evangelism. I could tell so many stories about the times we've been on campus, meeting students and, you know, showing up to Bible studies where lights go out and everyone pulls out their phone to finish the Bible study. Um, but I, the thing that I felt like sharing this morning to introduce you all to Alyssa, for those of you who don't know her, is uh, I have a deep admiration uh, for the way that Alyssa hear God, hears God's voice in prayer and also through scripture. And that's step one. And then step two of hearing God's voice, Alyssa is so obedient to walk it out, whatever God's told her. And that's a big deal because it's, it's one thing to hear from God. It's a whole nother thing to take him seriously and walk it out in your life. You know what I'm saying? Um, and Alyssa, her husband, Jacob, uh, I have a deep admiration for how you do that in your lives. And um, the image I got as I was thinking about this is um, every time we obey God and what he's told us, it allows us to put our roots deeper. It, it's kind of like a tree adding rings, you know? And um, Alyssa, I think you're like an old growth redwood. You are, you, your roots are so deep, you know? And you've reached so much higher than anyone I know that's your age. And uh, your spiritual authority, it's, it, it's powerful. So I'm really thankful to be here this morning. Uh, you know, the people at uh, Family Camp, you're going to have to catch this, you know, on YouTube this week because this is going to be a powerful sermon. So I'm going to pray for Alyssa and then I'm going to turn it over. Jesus, thank you uh, for the work, uh, for the many years of work you have uh, been lifting up Alyssa as a leader, giving her a voice. Thank you for her gift of preaching. Thank you for uh, the passion she has to hear your word um, and, to, and to give it to others. And we pray for a work of your spirit. Um, everything that is of you, Lord, we pray that it would find good soil in our hearts this morning. Amen. Thank you so much. Um, church, it's so good to be with you all here this morning. And I have loved this series that we've been in, The Thousand Names of God. I love how we get to hear from one another and from the Lord about how he and his people have named him and how we as the church body today still get to interact with those names. And so this morning, there are going to be a few moments where I'm going to actually ask you to turn to someone next to you. Family camp has been doing lots of community growth. You did not escape that. And this morning, I'm going to have you turn to, your, to a neighbor. So um, if you're not near someone, find someone. Um, but the first question I want to ask us this morning, if you've been around for a few weeks, we've been in this series of the names of God. Um, is there a name that has been really formative for you in your discipleship, whether from this series or not, that um, you just want to sit with and share with someone this morning? So I'm actually going to have you turn to someone now. Is there a name of God that you deeply value or that you've heard a series um, preached about? And how has that affected you? So go ahead.
There's a lot of whispering in the house. So if you're online, go ahead and add it in the chat. We'd love to hear from you as well. Hopefully there's someone sitting next to you at home that you can chat with about. If not, put it in the chat. Right, it sounds like things are slowing down, so I'm going to start bringing us back. Sorry to interrupt. Hopefully both of you got to share. Um, what I love about this series is that by knowing who our God is, it helps us know who we are called to be. Right? Without an accurate view of who God is, we cannot expect ourselves to know how we are set apart and why. So I'm going to start with a question. Raise your hand if you love limits. Limitations on your life, limitations on what you can eat, limitations on where you can go or within your own body, etc. I guarantee that for the majority of us, we do not like being a limited being. And um, it's one of the frustrations of being human. In fact, when I encounter a limit, I most often want to go to this pivotal line from the 2004 ridiculous movie Mean Girls and say, the limit does not exist. <laughs> and so, unfortunately and fortunately for us, limits do exist. And this morning, I want us to sit with the idea of God as a good shepherd who draws boundary lines for us and that being a good thing. He is the one that is limitless, and he shows us where our limits are on earth. Now, there are over 40 places in Scripture that describe God as our shepherd, and even more times that describe the shepherds as being some of the metaphorical leaders of the time. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a few of those passages, Psalms 23 namely being one of them, which I know many of us have probably heard and is such a good passage to keep coming back to. As I've been learning about how we bring our cultural and individualistic perspectives to Scripture, I've been blown away by all that I miss by not being a Near Middle East, collectivist culture, Jewish person. And I love that about Scripture. I love that we can lean in with our perspectives, with the places that we're coming from, with our giftings, with our experiences and culture, and gain a rich understanding of Scripture. But that additionally, when I study the scriptures with people who don't look, think, or live like me, scripture becomes even more deep. There are more gifts that arise out of scripture. And so this morning, I want to share some of those things that I've been learning as I have been reading and studying and thinking about this passage. So this is Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Now, if you've been around, you may have heard many, many great sermons about Psalms 23. I'm not here to compete with them. Pastor Andrew even gave us a sermon at the beginning of his series about the unforced rhythms of grace. He shared with us photos from like the desert where shepherds would have to lead their flocks, not to these grand pastures and meadows that we might find in Butte County, but to these tiny little pockets of grass and know where to lead his people, his sheep, so that they could find that. And he also told us about how the Lord is just such a good guide, that he guides us to places of rest. And growing up, I would have heard verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, as an invitation for gratitude. Without expecting anything more, it was to find gratitude in every season, which I think is a fantastic truth. I also recognize that the ancient cultural mode of patronage, which is something I'm going to explain in a little bit, would have affected the early hearers and readers of this Psalms. So from this fantastic book, Misreading Scripture Through Individualistic Eyes, the authors E. Randolph Richards and Richard James dive into systems of patronage, honor and shame, mediation and brokerage, and talk about the ways that these would have existed and still do exist in the biblical world in the near Middle East. It's a sequel to their just as rich book, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, and I encourage them both so deeply and work for InterVarsity, and we have a coupon for InterVarsity Press. If you want a coupon for it, I will give that to you because I want you to read it so badly. So I had no clue what patronage was, so if you're with me, we're all in the same place. Um, when I first dove into this book with my Chico grandma, we would pick up different books and just read them together. I thought patronage referred to something being patronizing or someone holding an exorbitant amount of power and using it really unjustly. And that didn't feel biblical or godly, right? But as we dove into the book, we discovered just how defining this system is for the, for the biblical world and how much more depth it gave to the Lord being the good shepherd. So I'm going to define patronage for us now, and it's going to feel a little academic, but I promise we'll dive into it, we'll walk it through it, and we'll see how it affects the ways that we see Psalms 23. So this is an image of what a relationship between a patron and a client is. It describes an asymmetrical or imbalanced reciprocal relationship where one party, the patron, who has wealth and access to resources, gives gifts to clients who are in need but have nothing to offer in return but gratitude and loyalty. It's all based on personal relationship. So it's founded in a collectivist culture that believes in the phrase, we give to we. In our individualistic collective, or in our individualistic culture, we might say, I give to you, you give to me, this helps us all, but it's still very disjointed. Whereas the collectivist culture person would say, we give to us and this helps us succeed. So I'm gonna give you an example of a patronage system in a real life ancient society. You can picture a wealthy citizen that would be the patron of the town. Uh, before Amazon, uh, Postmates, Uber Eats, or even easily accessed banking. You are a baker, and you make bread for your family, and this is your way of life. And your bakery burns down. You do not have access to resources to rebuild your bakery, but you know someone who does. 
And every morning, people line up with their needs in front of the patron's house, and they would go and plead their case to him. And the patron would give you money to rebuild your bakery. Now, in the collectivist culture, gifts comes with strings attached, and for them, that is a really good thing. It requires interdependency on one another. It requires reciprocity. It requires long-standing relationship. And so for this patron, he might say, okay, I will help you rebuild your bakery if you supply bread for my family until I don't need bread anymore. And if you take on this list of clients that I'm going to offer you who are all paying clients, but you'll just need to figure out how to work them into your system. So because he knows that this, this client, you, you as the baker, cannot repay him for your loan, you barely make enough money to supply your family with their needs, um, what does he require in return? Your gratitude and loyalty. Now, in ancient cultures, and even still now in the Middle East, gratitude and loyalty is one of the most central tenets of the culture. And ingratitude would have been one of the most egregious sins of their culture. And loyalty would have extended not only to them, but to their other friends. This loyalty also extended to the idea that once you have identified your patron, you look to no other patrons, either in your town or in neighboring towns, to supply your needs. Your patron becomes your patron for all of your needs. You see how this is starting to fit together? We're going to keep walking it through. Now, this system feels like a strange idea for us, right? We live in a world and in a culture where we get to choose whatever company we want to, changing our mind at will, deciding what works best for us. But in a collectivist society where everyone is dependent on each other and you don't go outside your community to look for help, this is a huge piece of their culture. In fact, it was so normal and custom that if the, you tried to ask an Arabic-speaking person how to name this system, they would understand what you're talking about, but they wouldn't have a word for it. You know, like when, when there's something so ingrained in your culture, you're like, oh yeah, we do do that. I don't know why, and I don't know what it's called. That's what this is like for the Middle East. And so some people call it crocodile tears because they're like, people come and plead these great cases to me. And other people would call it something else um, as they try and name what it is that the system does in their culture. So we're going to go back to the passage of Psalms 23. And while I read it again, I'm going to change a few words to help us understand the patronage system in this passage. But as I read it, we're going to do something called a visio divina because we have some time this morning, and I'm very excited about that. So this is a piece of art called The Good Shepherd. It is made by a fantastic Korean artist named Shin Meng, and I just want you to sit with it, so hopefully you can see a majority of it. I'll also move if that feels helpful. But a visio divina is a divine image. It's a way of interacting with a piece of God's story when we did not have access to written scripture, or maybe it was harder for us to find access to written scripture. And we still get to use it today. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is to just take in the image, find where your eyes kind of settle in the image, find a detail or a color or a piece of the image that feels striking. Second, I want you to kind of settle in a little bit more and see what sort of emotions or thoughts are brought up for you why the, author, the artist used a certain color, or why he included a certain feature. 
And as I read this scripture, I want to know what places of the image you're drawn to. And like at the beginning of the message, you're going to turn to the person next to you and talk about it. So I'm warning you now. Um, But I'm going to read Psalms 23 for us again. This image will stay up and you just sit and, and sit with this image. The Lord is my shepherd. I will look nowhere else. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just keep sitting with the image. So I want you to think, and then I'm going to have you pair up about where were you drawn in the image? Or if you can't see the image very well, maybe in the passage. Um, and what emotions or thoughts were brought up for you? So go ahead and turn to someone nearby and share those two things. Where were you drawn in the image and what emotions or thoughts were brought up for you? your invitation to make sure the other person shares just in case one of you is talking a little bit more. in the house if you give me a thumbs up if you close to done or done great okay Uh, this image is very detailed and I'm sorry that 
this is what you have right now, but um, you can look up Shang, Shin Meng and this uh, piece of art is uh, available for purchase, but I love it. There's details about the table being placed before me on the, on the left. There's you're anointing my head with oil on the right. There's just tinier pieces of the image that are harder to see from probably where you're at. But um, I hope that was a good experience of interacting with a divine image. It's something that we use sometimes with our college students. It's a helpful way of kind of mixing up how we learn and hear from God. Um, but I, I'm sure you noticed that it was a subtle change in verse one from the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, to the Lord is my shepherd, I will look nowhere else. But it blew open for me the depth to which I trust the Lord as my shepherd and supplier of all of my needs. We truly do lack nothing if the Lord is our patron and we choose to look nowhere else but to him. He has the resources, the connections, the peace, the fulfillment of our deepest hopes and dreams, our purpose, and I will look nowhere else but to him. In the book, it, he writes about how uh, the Lord uses the shepherd language. So I'm going to read that for us really fast. He says, when God describes himself as a shepherd, he isn't discussing animal husbandry. He isn't arguing that raising sheep is the most divine of all professions. We know that. But what may have gone without being said is that shepherding was actually a very common metaphor that ancients used to speak about patronage. The patron is the shepherd. He or she uses their power to lead and care for their flock. The flock are the clients. Shepherds protect the flock from harm. They provide the flock with food and ensure their material needs are guaranteed. A flock knows who their shepherd or their patron is. They are expected to listen to their patron's voice. They are to loyally follow him. A flock with a good shepherd is a well-fed, well-protected, and well-led group of people. Ensuring this is the shepherd's job. And isn't this what the Lord has been inviting us into since the beginning of time? Didn't he tell Adam and Eve, do not look to that tree to supply you with the answers about the knowledge of good and evil when I hold those answers? Didn't he say it to the Israelites every single time they entered into a new land with other gods and other cultures? And he said, do not worship their gods made of wood and stone, but look to me and me alone. Doesn't he say it to us now? Doesn't he plead with us not to look outside of himself when we have needs? Whether needs of peace, financial security, purpose, safety, energy, health, and healing. Will we look to him first? He may completely answer our requests with external things like counseling, intervention, medical help. I'm not saying those things are bad. But what I am saying is will our first choice be to seek him first? When Jacob and I were waiting on the Lord for Elena, it was unreal how many times people's advice was a temptation away from that truth. I know that um, it's not the case for everyone, including people in our own church, but for us, we felt a very clear call from the Lord not to pursue medical treatment and for us to wait on the Lord in his timing. 
And it was our invitation. And when we told people we weren't getting pregnant, people offered medical advice, adoption advice, very intimate and personal and strange advice about how we could get pregnant. And I think that's a reality of our world. I love the people who have given us advice. Like, this is no shame on them. I think the temptation of our world is to provide answers for unanswered things. And unanswered prayers are a really tricky thing. And so even though we deeply love our people, we also felt the temptation to look outside of what the Lord had already invited us to do. And this felt contrary to believing the Lord was the good shepherd and supplier of our needs in this situation. So what does this mean for us? One, I believe that we can trust the boundary lines of the Lord. Back to the rule of limits. When I know that the Lord is indeed a good shepherd, I can trust the boundary lines that he has drawn in my life. Psalm 16, 5 to 6 reads, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I imagine these boundary lines much like a pen for sheep or kind of the guiding um, shepherd's hook as he's leading his, his sheep. And I've been reflecting a lot on the boundary lines that are in existence in my own life. Boundary lines made up of the work and family balance, hours in a day, health and wellness, and so many more. And most often when I come up against these boundary lines, I think, why does this one exist? Can't I push past this boundary line? Can't I work harder or do more so that this boundary line doesn't exist? And all of these questions are rooted in the fact that I hate limits and feeling like I can't meet all of the expectations. But when I say expectations, I mean the expectations of the world, not of Jesus. Jesus doesn't guilt me when I come up against the very real societal pressures to be a full-time mom and a full-time minister, to work 40-plus hours a week and still have time to take care of myself, work out, make organic meals from scratch 100% of the time, and have endless amounts of patience for my family. (laughs) No. (laughs) Jesus has placed boundary lines in my life. He's telling me to pull back from work a little bit or to say no to some of the things in my life right now so that I have energy, so that I have patience, so that I can cook at least one or two good meals a week (laughs) and ask my husband for help the other days. Um, I can trust the boundary lines that Jesus has placed in my life. And it's because I know that he is the limitless one and I am not. We have limits, people. (laughs) And I am a limited being because he is my patron. I am loyal to him above all else. And I can trust that the boundary lines have fallen where they have fallen and I can call them pleasant. These boundary lines are good news to us, friends. And I'm so grateful that Jesus is the one that defines them. What feels important to note is that there are always going to be different characters in our life that try and draw these boundary lines for us. Amen? (laughs) We personally can define them. The world could try and define them. Our friends, our family could try try to define it. Our bosses could try and define it. Natural order and physics could try and define it. 
or we can let God define them. In our own story of fertility, it could have been easy and even tempting to decide our own path at our own pace or to allow the world or the natural to dictate our decisions about medicine. And the only way we knew was through discernment about where the Lord was drawing boundary lines. And I don't ever think infertility was a boundary line for the Lord, but he was saying, push past the natural and trust me into this place that I've called you to. And the only way we knew was as um, we trusted the Lord as he was drawing us through in prayer. Prayer individually, prayer together, prayer in community. And the voice of God brought peace, even in the midst of uncertainty. It cast out fear and shame that we felt. And it was confirmed over and over again. May we listen to the boundary lines and trust him to supply the needs and the desires that we feel we cannot meet within our own limitations. Secondly, what I believe is true about this passage is that we are not the good shepherd, and that is good news. We are not the good shepherd. The triune Father, Son, and Spirit is. And this is good news because if you are in any form of leadership, you may have felt the pressure to hold everyone's burdens, carry all the answers, or even felt the temptation to be the supplier of solutions to your teams. But here's a quote from the same book. Peter writes to the elders in 1 Peter 5, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. They write, church leaders are to seek to serve, not to use their position and role to obligate or to gain dishonestly. Peter reminds these leaders that Christ is the chief shepherd who will reward them. They are not the ultimate patrons of the church, but brokers of Jesus placed by him to serve the church. It is easy for us to forget that we are just brokers or mediators. When we forget, then we begin to act as if we are the patrons, which obligates recipients to us rather than to God. We are called to be brokers or mediators in relationship to one another, never the patron. In fact, I love that Peter writes this because of the way Jesus reinstated him in John 21. When Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, and Peter responded three times, you know that I love you, Lord. Jesus tells him, feed my lambs. Jesus does not respond with, be the good shepherd, but with, feed my lambs. It begins with service, not sovereignty. Peter knows that his role is to serve and to feed the lambs more than his role is to be the ultimate guide, leader, or patron for the sheep. Peter can trust that Jesus is the good shepherd now and forevermore and then tell the leaders of the church to be eager to serve in the same way. The best thing that we can do as leaders, as friends, as family members, as mentors is to point people to the one good shepherd and hear his voice together. This encourages us in so many ways because we are limited beings, but our good shepherd is limitless. 
He holds the answers and solutions that we do not know. And when we encounter a situation where we don't know what to say, our best invitation is to say, wow, I am so sorry and I don't know what to say. Can we listen to the Lord together? I would love to pray with you. Friends, as we go from this place, I pray that we truly get to know the triune Lord as the good shepherd, as the one who holds the boundaries for us and doesn't expect us to be patrons or the good shepherd to our teams and friends. There's freedom in this place to trust the boundary lines that have been drawn for us and to trust our role to point others to the good shepherd. And I feel like this morning as I was praying, I feel like as a pastoral note, as a campus ministry leader, as someone who holds a sense of shepherding and leadership in a community, if a shepherd has held unhealthy power over you, or if you've looked to them for answers that they couldn't give or shouldn't have given, I want to lament and apologize on behalf of leaders because there are some really shady shepherds in the world. And I'm sorry. And I hope that we as leaders in all the different facets in the city, in the community, in our homes and abroad, get to choose to be eager to serve rather than try to be sovereign. So I'm going to invite down the prayer team, and I'm going to pray for us this morning, um, that we would get to know the Lord as this good shepherd. So Jesus, thank you so much for your leadership, for the ways that you hold all things that we need. And may our lips and our hearts always worship you and say, we will look nowhere else but to you. You are the first place we go to, and we will say no to the other patrons of our life that try and tempt us away from you. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are a good shepherd, and you have drawn boundary lines for us in pleasant places, and I pray that our hearts would call them pleasant. Would we trust you as you draw them? Would we trust you as you redraw them? Would we trust you in the seasons that we're at and the limitations we feel? And I pray a blessing over people who feel limitations from this world, from the earth that are not rooted in your kingdom. Limitations of oppression and broken systems and injustice. I pray, Jesus, you would redefine those boundaries and that you would call us into a community that serves the greater we. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the ways that you lead us well and for the ways that uh, you have called us into servitude with you. We pray all the same in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, blessings to you. Uh, thank you for joining us online and in the house, and we will see you next week.